from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Coming to you live, two hours, sports analytics from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Business Radio Studio in looking onto the the damp, dark, gray locust walk of the University of Pennsylvania. But it's a beautiful Wednesday morning nonetheless. It is NFL Draft Week. It is NHL Playoff Week. It is NBA Playoff Week. All kinds of things going on. We're going to be talking about it over the next two hours. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and collaborator Eric Bradlow. We would love to hear you guys from you guys if you want to jump in here the number is 1844 Wharton that's 18449427866 you can also email us businessradio at com. businessradio at com. Matt Johnson our producer is back in the studio this week and he's available by email you can reach him if you're listening live we even pick up emails during the show 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday you're listening live if you're not listening live it's a great way to reach out to us between shows we're replayed about five times over the course of the next week. Our friend, colleague, and collaborator, Audie Weiner, just joined us. I did. It's good to be back. Looking like he's weather protected for the rain outside, but he's not sweaty, so I'm guessing he didn't ride in today. I did not ride in. It's not a riding day. It's not a riding day. All right, gentlemen. Although I try to put my head down a lot and do it, but uh, no, other impressive. commitments raise their heads. So You know, you probably reduce your life expectancy, don't you think, riding to work? Well, 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 that's an interesting <laughs> question, Cade Massey. And one I know there I, are two effects. They go in different directions, but I'm going to put my well, money on the Let me Let me frame it in a way that I think, Adi, on the risk side, you'll agree with, and people always do this calculation. You know the way the mortality curve works, right? If you make it to age 60, meaning you haven't died of something before that, you know, there's a bump. At age 60, where there's mortality goes up, people die of, unfortunately, cancer, heart disease, etc. Hold on. But there's then, no bump. There Come is. No. If you look at the curve, it, there's an uptick. But, and but it's th- not discontinuous. Well, it's no. a rate. I mean, you're essentially it, saying that the rate elevates at a faster rate than it would ordinarily elevate if that's you just correct. extrapolated uh, Correct. And then smoothly. it goes And then it goes back up, obviously, as you get older. My guess is if you make it to age 60, not having died in a bicycle accident, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to live a very long time. <laughs> but that bike accident may take you out before okay, then. So, so I have a dear colleague who is actually now emeritus, um, Dean Foster who years ago created a life calculator, which was right in the early days of the net was one of the biggest sensations. Okay. Because it was a very good life expectancy calculator. It was mm-hmm. terrific. And um, we had many arguments the about bicycles. The internet must have changed because that's not what happens sensationally on the net anymore. No, I mean, back then back there was the very day, little life, to do on Life it. calculators were the, no, but were the hot I, thing No, there the was very little to do on the internet. You, so this is one of the things you, know, you can oh, put this in. this is the 70s you must be no, talking about. No, it's the yes. 90s. But you know uh, but, the equation that fits <laughs> with an R squared of almost like 0.98? If you're past the age of 60, you take 100 minus your age, divide by 2, and that's your life expectancy. It's the R squared is point. It's over oh, point it's nine a, it's five. A, it's a very s- simple linear, linear fit. A hundred minus your yeah. age divided by two so, is so, your future life so expectancy. So if you're if you're, sev- if you're seventy, you have fifteen years expected life expected expectancy. Life. Mm-hmm. And so for my aunt and uncle who are now ninety three, they're thinking this ain't so bad. Like Not you know, so if bad, someone yeah. told them they're expected is four three and a half four years. 
expect it. They're saying that's not so bad. They'll well, take it. Well. But the so the R, point very high R squared, surprisingly linear. So it's, so it's how, a linear. How, how much does it degrade linear. when you're when you're young pups like we are? <laughs> so we're I'll all back, fifty basically. Well, so we you got listen to, if we got twenty five years of life and expectation. If, no, oh, no, no, it doesn't work at fifty. Well, you know why? No, because we of get the almost bump I talked about at sixty just ten seconds no, it's ago. It's not a half. It's not. I mean, our probability of making it's it not to seventy be that far is, off. is very high. It, no, it's highly nonlinear at this point. That's between my point. here and there. It's very nonlinear. Okay, so I'm not following the intuition enough to know what direction that's going to push. Okay, so essentially we're it's we're going to push us younger. What what, what, it's gonna push. <laughs> what Eric mean, is die doing? Er, die what Eric is doing is we have a very it's uh it's it, there's a certain period of time where the mortality rate is very low and the accidents are the number one contributors that's of my death point. in this certain range. And we're actually right in the midst of it. Now, what Eric is also yeah, pointing this out is, our point. is that this we're is why getting we out you, of it. This we're, is why we don't want you back in work I, every I day. You said if Adi makes it past this biking range, he's going to live a very long life. But well, he may I, die before then okay, in a bike accident. So the problem is the reason the benefit. Eric, Eric is here? I didn't realize Eric was here. Eric, Eric is here. All right. Uh, <laughs> so the benefit, and this is what, what Eric is, 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 and this is what we used to argue about, is the cardiovascular benefit and the weight benefits of bicycling, bicycling, sorry, bicycling, about 13, 14 miles a day. And that's the kind of thing that is, is, is apparently, and potentially not quite as, as, impact is not as quite as they, they believe, a very good thing for your health. Yeah. So well, you have these two things that go you against know each other. Other, some, Another some, good thing for your health, talking about the NBA and the NHL on a Wharton Moneyball show. All right, so we can do some of that. Uh, well, how about got, the MLB? I've got it on you my got, list. You got it on your list. That's all, on the all, list. All of, these, on the, all of these things are below the NFL, by the way, but if you guys insist, we can go with, let's go with playoffs first. What, playoffs, what, what's sure. going on? What's going on in the playoffs that has, that has interested you? Well, so we go back to the age-old discussion why do why we have is, them? No. Yeah, that, why are so many teams in them? But no. Why is the NHL just different? So let me... Oh, re- NHL. Okay, NHL. Right. So right. let me repeat what's going on for our fans here in basketball. So the top teams in the East and West have won four games to nothing. That's the Cavaliers. The, the two top and, teams. Yeah. I mean, the Cavaliers were the second in record, but they're the best team in the East. Warriors, they went 4-0. The Spurs are leading their series now. The Raptors are leading their series. Houston just beat OKC. The Celtics have now even their series. It might turn out every favorite wins. Clippers, Jazz, you could say it's 50-50. Now let's talk about hockey. In the Western Conference, here are the four teams that advanced. There are eight teams that get in. The three, four, five, and the eight. In the Eastern Conference, it's the one, two, five, and the seven. So the one and two were eliminated in the Western Conference. The one and the two were eliminated in the Western Conference. That would never happen in basketball. Never happen in basketball. And so, again... We had one, two, three, four, half of the favorites lost in the first round in hockey. I think maybe zero of the favorites will lose in the first round in the NBA. And to me, that caught my eye in is sports. It, is it because the games are noisier or the regular season is less diagnostic? That's a great question. Um, so you're talking about hockey. Yeah. Is, is the games, I think, well, I think that the, I think that the the games are noisier. I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money on the games are noisier. Yeah. Not that the the regular and, season is less diagnostic. Well, therefore, for the same number of games, which is a 
They play 80 versus 82, almost yeah. so exa- identical. So if the games are noisier, then the season will be less diagnostic. So both of those things go in the, in, are together. In yeah, so case. I was just surprised again that, you know, again, every year we see it, that, you know, teams that the regular season in hockey is meaningless. Well, I don't know. Ha- I mean, 50-50. Half the favorites won in the first round. Half the favorites lost, including the one and two seeds in the Western Conference. Because you could think it's nonlinear. Like, well, not the one and two seeds aren't going to lose. Maybe the last couple teams in. The four so, five. So, when they play what, each what, other. What, what but no, happen, it's not true. What would happen if we had an 82-game baseball season and we had eight teams from each conference, each uh, league? Would we see something comparable? Yes, I think yes. we would. I, I mean, I, I that's what, exactly, right? I, I think you would. I don't think that we're missing any any team that didn't make the playoffs that would win. That, and that's when you say that the regular season is not diagnostic enough. No, no, no. It's just the rank ordering. Is the rank, how, so how the rank ordering, is the rank ordering? The, the, so the rank and ordering is, might be a little bit, a little bit shaky, but yeah. you still have more or less the same teams. And I think at this point in hockey, there isn't that. It's not um, essentially definitive that an eight plays a one and loses. Although we do, I will, I will well, say. Well, the I will eight say, played a one and a seven played a two in the, in the uh, in Western right. Conference and they won. That's right. It happens in hockey. It doesn't happen in, in basketball. Although, I will say, you did play a little trick that the Celtics are actually one. I said the Celtics are one. And the Celtics you, you are 2-2 two 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 right now. Right, I They're know two that. Two. I said you, they could win. They, right. All so top you, seeds the could win. The trick was you said Cavalier was the effective. The Cavaliers were the effective, which is probably true. But this is a kind of analysis that we often do after the fact to make sure that our... But our, our he's our accusing you of P-hacking. He's accusing you of P-hacking. But remember, just, just for our <laughs> Maybe fans that listen every week, remember the discussion Cade and I had last week where I made the claim that the Cavaliers were the two-seed on purpose. They uh. wanted to play Indiana instead of Chicago. They wanted to play Toronto instead of Washington. And so to me, they notice LeBron didn't even play like the last three games of the season. I think they were in better shape as the two-seed than the one. They know they can beat the Celtics anyway. They don't care. They actually have an easier trip to the Eastern Conference Finals. So that's why I am P-hacking, but I'm also I'm giving them, credit, giving for them credit for being strategic. So tell me what, what you make of what's going going forward. So the, obviously the NBA playoffs get more interesting from here. They haven't been much interesting so far. Do you believe in Houston? Do they have a chance in the West, for example? I, you know, the one thing I will say is that I never thought I'd live to see the day where I would say it's the different James Harden. But I'm going to tell you something. This guy, I thought, was more West, Russell Westbrook than, let's call it, Tony Parker, which is I thought the only thing James Harden cared about was getting a good shot for himself. He's changed. He, you know, I don't know if Mike D'Antoni, the coach, you know, has gotten him to distribute the ball more. The guy is not a ball hog anymore. He tries to find the open man. It might be because he has more confidence in the people around him. The guy does want to get good shots for his team. I mm-hmm. think Houston, if they get hot, they can shoot. They got four guys that are all shoot above 40% from basically from the three-point line. Can they do it for a seven-game series? I think they can get to the Western Conference Finals. I'm not convinced. I don't know who's going to beat the Warriors. I don't know what super team is going to beat the Warriors. So will Houston go to San Antonio next if San Antonio finishes up Memphis? Is that the way it is? That is correct. One thing I checked just recently is they do not recede in basketball. So, you know, if there's an upset, you know, that's the way it goes. Right. So two plays three, which means San Antonio would play Houston, and one, which is Golden State, plays the winner of the Jazz and the Got Clippers. It. Got it. So, so what, are, what are the probabilities? You'd use the word well, hot. We talked, this, we talked about this last week. So I wish, I think, Adi, you and I, you know, we're not necessarily non-gambling people. Last week, we talked about this, the odds, the Vegas odds for the Cavaliers to win the, the, win the NBA Finals. 
was the three? Two percent. Two percent. I thought Fifth. it was about three percent, but yeah. Two to three. So you could have gotten four, essentially forty to one odds. I'm telling you right now, I wish I had some money on Cleveland at forty to one. Why can't they? I mean, they're not a forty to one. Come on, they're much more likely to win the fight. Well, my my question is 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 we use the word hot. Let's let's just talk about what that means. Hot means they're going. Traditionally, it means there's momentum. If you if you get on your game, you can carry that through, and you can defeat opponent who over the course of a season will will beat you. An alternative way of looking at that is luck. So will you will you get lucky and and have a streak of good luck that will allow you to beat someone? And that that relates to of course the probability. So what do you think is the probability? Let's say that it is the Cavaliers versus Golden State. What do they need to do to beat them? So that's a great question. So I was actually I was thinking about this since we're a statistics show. I was thinking about that this morning. Let's imagine that let's say Houston or let's say the Cavaliers, play their best basketball. This is the way I always think about it when I talk to my kids, everything else. Let's say Cleveland plays its best. At what point of the distribution does uh, Golden State have to play for Cleveland to win? So if Cleveland and Houston, uh, Golden State both play at 100%, yeah, let's say they play great, their peak. Great way to think about it. Then I say I think Golden State will win that series. Let's say Golden State plays at their 90th percentile of the distribution. So still excellent. Let's call it A-minus basketball. Can they still win the series? I think the answer is yes. So now you have to say, how far down the distribution do they have to go? I would say... Where, I'm sorry, where are you putting Cleveland? Peg, you're pegging them at what percentile? Let's peg them let, at 90. Their best. I, no, I, no. The best they can. All right, let's say they're 90%. This okay. is your own... Well, basically, just for our listeners out there, just to translate, he's, he's doing a double integral. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that. Oh, that doesn't help. I'm sorry, but basically, well, what you're I'm saying, sort of, you're, no, you're saying, well, conditional on the on the point along uh, of Cleveland, where where does where does Golden State have to be in order to beat them? And then it right. can you do it in either direction. Basically, That's you, can, you, can, you, can up, you can you can um, you can imagine putting two distributions next to each other. Cleveland's distribution exactly. of possible playoffs, and, and there's always noise around. You know what happens in a game, but for any given game, you can say this was their seventy fifth percentile performance, or one right. night they're going to have a twenty fifth. And I'm making it, I'm making it a little simpler the math because I'm fixing one of the two. Like yeah. I'm fixing one of the two. Let's like fix, if you want at ninety yeah, percent, let's fix, fix Cleveland, Cleveland plays 90. really well. Ninety percent. I don't of think their they have a chance. Percent. I think Cleveland. Oh, if Cleveland plays ninety percent, if Cleveland plays ninety percent, is there? Is there, is there like any how possibility? How far down yep. do you have to go for Golden State? A lot of people might say at the median, fifty percent. Yeah, like Cleveland at ninety, Cleveland Golden typical, State go- at fifty. Right. Golden State is, is maybe that's even fifty fifty, and that just says to you that's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. It's going to be tough. But mm-hmm. I would have said the same thing last season. I would have said the same thing last season. And what happened? LeBron James had three of the best games in the history of the NBA playoffs. He had two 40-point games and a 30-point triple-double in the finals, in the so, f- Game 7. What's the difference between between LeBron's ability to carry his team and Westbrook's inability to carry his team? It's a great question. So here's the way I would say it. When has LeBron won the championship. I know he's gone seven times. He's three and four in the finals. If you think about the first year with Cleveland, he had nobody essentially to play with. I think Shaq might have been on that team, but Shaq was like in his last year. He didn't win. The two he won in uh, the Heat, he obviously had Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. I think the amazing thing about LeBron is he's doing it with a bunch of very, very... We could debate whether Kevin Love's a great player. We could debate whether Kyrie Irving's a great player. He's doing it with a bunch of, I would call, very, very good players, and he knows he needs that. It's very different than Golden State, where they have you know two of the top 
five players in the NBA and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. A lot of people might argue Draymond Green is a top NBA 10 mm-hmm. NBA player as mm-hmm. well. And I'm leaving out uh, Clay Thompson, who is the leader. I mean, he's the most effective shooter in the NBA when you bring in foul shots, two-pointers, and three-pointers. So they have four of the top 10 kind of best players. Um I think that's with LeBron. He trusts the guys around him. I think his ability to make those guys A minus players. Okay, so you uh, the initial question was LeBron versus Westbrook and what you've talked about is LeBron is much better. But but um, that's what I'm trying to understand is what do do we believe Westbrook is fatally flawed and couldn't if you put Westbrook on the team that LeBron has now cuz he clearly is not that's on that team. That's a good team. way to he think about it. He doesn't have the same surrounding simple, cast. Simple simple replacement. Yeah. So drop Westbrook cuz there's a lot of talk lately that even if Westbrook wins the MVP, and it's kind of hard to deny him the MVP. There are many folks who think he's who's he's never going to be a championship player because of the style with which he plays. So th- this is the counterfactual that makes it hard to do. So uh, for those people that have watched the OKC Houston series, in every game, Russell Westbrook in the fourth quarter basically you know got tired. Humans get tired, and he shot last night. I think he was two for ten, two for eleven in the fourth quarter, and he had had forty points or something going into the fourth quarter. But at the it, when the when the pressure's on, he's just extremely fatigued. Put him on Cleveland. That's the counterfactual. Does he change his style? Or does he play the same Russell Westbrook and not get the other guys involved? That's hard to know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the only thing we could do is look back last year when he had Kevin Durant on his team. Mm-hmm. What's When they were up 3-1 against Golden State, you guys may not remember the game. I do remember the game well. Yeah. It was the old Russell Westbrook yeah, sure. trying to win it himself. In the fourth quarter. In the, the last four or five minutes. Last four or five minutes, yeah. and they lost every game. So my belief is, no, he's not as great as LeBron. And mm-hmm. LeBron will tell you, LeBron is happy. You hear him say this all the time. He's more than happy for his teammates to take the game-winning shot as opposed but, to him. But I do like what you're saying on the, on the counterfactual. so difficult to— It's tough. Can, It's impossible, essentially. But because, for example, consider Harden. You, we led this segment by you're saying Harden is a different player than I thought he ever could be. Yes. So Westbrook, I mean, what alternative does he really have? Who's he going to—last year with Durant, he could have played it a little differently. This year, he doesn't have an alternative. So you put Harden down in Houston, surrounded by some guys who might get some things done, and he might, and he becomes a little more generous. Turns out, I think it turns. I think it comes to one fact, which is if you think you're as great as you are, and you think you're the only one that can get it done, you're not going to pass the ball when it's crucial. You're just not. <laughs> and Westbrook thinks he's the greatest. Maybe he is, and he thinks that they have the best chance to win if he shoots, no matter what. So this was a knock on. Kobe, he had that vibe at the end of games. This was maybe an early knock on Jordan, but not that much. And Jordan, of course, famously, you know, dished to Kerr against the Cavs, was it? And, I mean, he he took the last shot against the Jazz in, you know, his last one, I think, but in, in about the third one or something against Cleveland, he fed Kerr for the championship-winning shot. Bill Cartwright, Bill Wennington, Steve Kerr, those guys all took game-winning shots, not Michael Jordan. And that's mm-hmm. what Jordan did. Well, that's what makes someone spectacular. I mean, essentially what you're saying is it's actually two pieces. It's one that's the group that you have around you. And second, to recognize that in order to be great in basketball, you have to make the others great. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join us, one eight four four wharton That is one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 Cade, Eric, and Adi this morning. That's NBA, guys. We could keep going to that for a while. But what about NHL? Anything more on that? We. Are you following it? Are you excited about any of it? 
Well, I was more excited when I thought that the Capitals, the number one seed with 118 points and the team that, you know, in some sense, everyone had anointed as one of the great teams of all time. I was more excited when I thought they were going to lose in the first round. But that's kind of why they play seven game series (laughs) and not one game series. So all of a sudden, you know, they seem to have turned it around in some sense. And now they're playing, you know, much better. Didn't they they have like three overtime games in that series? I mean, just incredible. And the Leafs are really young. The Leafs have to be excited about what was going on because they are not a team that was supposed to be taking the caps to OT three times in playoffs. I do notice that you you are excited about the heavy favorites uh, possibility of losing. Always. Why, why? What is the psychology behind someone that's being human interested? Nature, human nature. Is, we love to see the. Well, the overwhelming... I know it's hard for a Yankees fan to understand this, but that is that is. Well, human years nature. of years of victories make it makes it difficult. That's the smugness that earns that the earns admiration. The, that earns the admiration. Uh-huh. Right? Well, we can turn our attention to MLB now that we've exhausted NHL. That, that was a quick exhaustion. It was. Well, I'll, so I'll use, you know, you use the word integral, so I'll, I'll give you the integral <laughs> that makes me root for the underdog. So let's imagine the Capitals win the NHL playoffs, and, you know, all right, fine, I'll say, well, the best team won, congratulations. Will you and I be talking about that a year, two years, five years, ten years? Probably not. The favorite won. When the underdog wins, you and I may be talking about we'll talk that about for the next while, 20 yes. years. Well, I'm integrating over a longer time period. I have this period's utility, next period's. I can talk about an underdog winning forever. <laughs> On the other hand. And because there's availability. Uh, there's all these types of biases. But you know what? I'm going to enjoy it for years uh, to come. I want years of enjoyment. Let's turn that around. Let's turn that around. I think this might be a moment to correctly use the phrase, begs the question. Well, it, it sort of does. I mean, so begging the question is to is to assume what you want to prove, which is you're essentially saying that you like this idea because you like this idea. <laughs> exactly. Really, exactly. And as opposed to saying why. Now, I will turn no, it around. I've given you why. Uh, well, no, well, because, <laughs> why didn't I say because why? you'll like it. You'll like but it why for is longer. It, why I mean, is it such a source of utility? Why is it you're going to talk about it for 10 years? That's what Adi's wanted. Because it's an extraordinary event. I li- events with low probability, I so talk we're still about ta- more. we're still talking about Tiger Woods' 10-shot victory at, at Augusta. So even uh, though it was a win and even though it was a favorite, it was the unlikeliness of it. Not only that, but 21 years but, old. But think about... Know, so yes, I talk about extraordinary events, as I think most humans do, more so than I talk about common events. I talk about events, you know, you always but say... But there's two we, sides to the comments. So when a, when a terrific, tremendous team walks all over their opponents and walks into the championship so easily, like the Yankees did when they won 125 games in a season, we still talk about that because of its drama. There's two sides the Yankees to Yankees won 125 in a season? In, uh, in, including the playoffs, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's like, what? No, what? Your, your point is a good one, which is, that's, that's see, that's the first fair comment I've heard from you two guys since I've sat down here, which is there's an asymmetry to the distribution. Like, why don't I talk about it when the team on the right tail dominates? Why am I only yes. worried talking about the left tail? Now, that's a good point. That point I can agree <laughs> it with. It took us 15 minutes and a couple of baseball bats to get it across to you, but I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. But it, that's always, it, I think it's, it, it is fascinating to watch both sides. And I mean, there's something majestic about watching the Golden State Warriors play basketball. They're fantastic. And mm-hmm. we don't root against them necessarily because you like to see them but they, but this, triumph. This and last actually, year was almost a tragedy on that side. I mean, no, I, now you're overdoing it. You're, I'm not missing your, you're missing your point. Your point is, at some point, because they're so good and because they're so favored, despite the majesty with which they play or whatever, you start kind of pulling against them because everyone else is pulling against them. It's just not fun. But we didn't. We, we, we lost something to posterity. 
think about. We enjoyed Cavaliers winning no. last year. We did it. But there was something. There was the counterfactual of Golden State winning. They would have been anointed the greatest team ever. Uh, who wants to? Uh, no. no, and that's not fun, right? But, but, yeah, is it? I think it is. It, it I is, think we but, lost. We gained something. We lose something. It's not as if it's completely a, a positive sum. Well, let me just say. For that's the, fair. The, the, the thing about last year was that despite despite years of not quite loving LeBron James and not quite getting on the Cleveland thing, that there was so much adoration focused on Golden State, it turned me into a Cavs fan. I was glad to see James win. And I, and I was and, beside, but I really, in spite of myself. And if you look at the, you know, I don't know if this is the right metric, but if you look at, you know, 538, very reasonable source, had Golden State as a 62% chance to win the finals this year before the playoffs started. Cavs, let's say 2 3%. I'd like to see a two teams play. I'd like to see the Cavs win. That was a thirty to one ratio before the playoffs started, and I I just I just thought the the probability well, thirty to one before the season started. No, no, the playoffs. It was the oh, this, number, this year, not this last year. year. No, this year is different. Last year, I'm, no, I'm talking about okay, this talking about season. This year. I'm saying I see. I'd like to yeah, see. Sure, we'd like to I'd see like it. to see a team <laughs> that supposedly had you know according to five thirty eight might be ninety percent for the Cavs. Ten percent for the Golden State Warriors. That's what a thirty to one odd says to me. It's not ninety percentile, fifty percentile. That I mean, it would have to be way below what you would expect them to play. They'd have no chance. Get a rec league team out there, thirty yeah, to one Eric, against. Is there, is there a topic out there that you're happy about that we could shift the subject to? Maybe Actually, a little, little better mood from Mr. Bradlow. No, I'm in a good mood about this. This is me in a good mood. <laughs> That's you're in a good mood. We can We it's what do you want to turn our attention to? Well, anything you know, that makes Eric have hot dog eating. You know, I will say. I mean, we have to throw a shout out to Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson pr- produces a wonderful uh, rundown for us, which which suggests topics for us. He put on the list Scrabble. What in the world? He did that, and 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 uh, I'm an avid Scrabble player, so is that right? I know that you guys probably don't want to go there, but it is an not, interesting. Maybe not in the first. Not in the first the segment, but. Uh, well, some things in baseball. You love baseball. I love baseball, we, But yes. obviously we're going to talk about the NFL draft, which I want to talk about in a second. But in baseball, I, the four teams that caught my eye are not – two of them might be teams you would have thought of. But there are four teams that have above a 2-1 and one record. So, you know, two, two wins to one. for – Two to one. Yeah. So one of them you might not expect, Baltimore. We did not expect Baltimore. Right. Baltimore's 13-6. and six. Um they were projected before the season to be an 84-win team. Mm-hmm. So at some, this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. At some point, you have to start saying they're likely. Like at how, what point well, in the season do you have to adjust them upwards? Let me just say the other three teams. Houston is 14 and six, but they were predict- Houston's 14 and six. That's correct. Yeah, they, they were, were forecasted to be very 90. Good. Yeah. Washington also forecast also at excellent. 90 yeah. is 14 and six, and then Colorado is 14 and seven, and they were projected at 81 wins. Right. So it, let's just, let's actually talk about something interesting because there's a the question is what do you how do you readjust those and it's te- so, it's typical for people to say you take a, a team that's say fifty fifty take which one of Colorado. those eighty one Colorado was eighty one exactly fifty fifty now they're up um, up seven up fourteen seven. and seven so what do you do with that seven and actually what you're supposed to do is just take the fifty fifty and add the seven. And people don't do that. They sort of imagine, well, they were forecast to do 81. Now they're over. So therefore, going back, going to the future, they should come under. It's a classic so I just failure. Want to make sure, I just want to make sure you're clear. So there's 141 games, let's say, left right. in baseball. Mm-hmm. 50% of that's 70 and a half. So, so your prediction right now would be 84 and a half wins, which is yep. three and a half of the over that's that right. they are right now. That's exactly right. 
That's a very so. As opposed to, let me. This is this is a great topic for our listeners. As opposed to, let me not, readjust the fifty percent number because they're fourteen and seven. So for, now I'm going to say, let's imagine they go two and one the rest of the games, which is obviously. No, no. But even, but you wouldn't even adjust the fifty percent. Would you adjust it to fifty three percent? Because if you went no, up, not fifty. I might adjust it a little bit because there's some information at this point, and that's and that that probably should be. But taken let's just remember. Okay, and what one, most people do is they they go downwards. They actually fi- they figure Colorado's overplayed. And oh, so going forward, they're going to no. Now, now, now with that. you, now I think it's all crazy, and, and I was slow. I think I haven't had enough coffee this morning. So you're, you're saying basically, if the original forecast was fifty percent, which it is for Colorado, then exactly, you just, you, you're not changing the forecast yet. I'm, you're, no. At this point, I'm, I'm not really changing the right it. answer. Well, that's no. what I'm saying. That's a discussion. So, uh, if I change it, that, I would change it maybe by one game. Audi's offering that as a as a heuristic against expecting regression like beyond reverse mean reversion right so let me just yes. right so let me just do the math for all of our listeners out but, there so but, they're 14 and 7 right now let's imagine there's three possibilities they play as if they played as predicted based on the prior which would mean they would get as we talked about to 84 and a half wins three and a half over another possibility is we say oh they must be better than a 500 team let's even say we bump them to 52 percent every one percent in baseball is essentially a win and a half mm-hmm. okay. so now they you'd say 87 and a half you could say it's going to be mean reversion yeah. which means you bump them down which might mean bring them back to 500 all three of those are not so implausible that's the interesting i could see an argument for mean we, reversion we, yeah, too you, you don't want you, you never, i wouldn't do that but you can yeah. I mean and so could, Adi, Adi likes the heuristic he gave because it protects against that but Adi, it can't be that yours is a time invariant heuristic because if this were the all-star break no it's a longer time see the point is it's a very short period of time there's there's 30 teams okay if it's a very short period of time then yeah you're just not going to update the there's got to be someone at the end there's always an exception right so one of the things we one of the things we're talking about is we have this eric thames character Let's move from team to individual. He just came from Korea. He spent three years there where he was hitting the ball out of the park. He was hitting over 40 home runs, nearly a 350 batting average. He comes to, back to the MLB, and he's doing exactly the same thing that he, that he did there. What do we make of this? Well, he's having a terrific season so far, but it's way above what we forecasted for him. But if you think about it, in any given period of time, there's always, some ex- there's always exceptional performances. Yeah. And when you see exceptional performances come from Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, they're doing what they normally do. You just say, well, that's what those guys do. When you see someone who's yep. tremendous, there's yep. hundreds this, and hundreds this, of players. This makes a ton to of see sense. It, to, to see an so extra you're, you're, same Someone has to be exceptional. So Andy's saying, therefore, be very reluctant to update. I mean, I think that it's a great correction. 20, it makes a lot of sense. 20 games. Well, here's but, another but, thing. Adi, there, is a second, there is a second question, which I, I took Eric's first question. To be, which is at what point do you update? Ah, okay. So Let's that, just double it. They're twenty-eight and fourteen. Now, now I'm starting to update. Okay. Absolutely, <laughs> because think about it. What is fifty-fifty out of out of twenty-seven games? There you it? go. Let's work with that. Let's just go. That's that's how many wins? How well, many? well, they've played twenty-one right now. Oh, 21 so games. Ten so and a half. They're three and, and a half, half over. So that's that's nothing. Well, I mean, so your point is. They wouldn't. Let's imagine in my list if they had lost one more game. If they were thirteen and eight, they wouldn't have made my list. I said two and one. But certainly, let's say they were off to a decent twelve and nine. Not that different than fourteen and seven. We wouldn't even be talking about adjusting no. them. So who knows? Maybe they got so a here, lucky hit, here, an error. Who knows what here, it is? And all of a sudden, we're adjusting up fifty percent. Okay, That's your th- point. Th- we can actually provide a statistical answer to this question. At what? At what point? At what sample size and difference from fifty fifty? Can we say with some confidence that it's truly different than fifty-fifty? That's one way to put it. That's right. So, what's an interesting deviation? We are from not 50/50? even one SD higher than the mean. Okay, it's just not something to write home about. 
So you could put it this way. At this point in the season, how far above 50-50 would a team need to be to be 90% confidence that they're playing above 50-50? That's, right, so a, that's, a, very, my, that's a well-formed question, Eric. Bravo. Yeah, if, if my – I don't know if my math is correct here, but I think they would have – like through 25 games, yeah, that's right. I think if you were at 60%, then you'd be slightly significantly different than that's 50%. 15 and 10? 15 I think and 10. so. Okay, so if you're 15 and 10, that's 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 not as big a gap as you might think. You're slightly, slightly bigger than. So with some confidence, we think it's higher than 50, but it could just be a little bit higher than 50. Got it. That makes sense. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern from the Wharton School. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, Adi and Eric. Shane is out doing Shane Jensen things. In fact, I believe he's in Japan. The boy likes Japan. He will be back and join us eventually. A a, a little PSA. We are going to be out on the museum campus, Ben Franklin Parkway, tomorrow doing a live show with our friends with from the from the Wharton Sports Business Show, Ken Shropshire and Scott Rosner. Audie and I are going to be out there doing live from the NFL Draft. It's going to be a lot of fun. They're, they're saying something like 200,000 people out there on the steps and around the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Rocky Steps. The city is a little – if you're not here, you don't know. The city is – it's amazing to me there's this much interest in the NFL Draft. This is not a sporting event. This is an event about sporting events. And it's turned into one of the biggest things going. So we're going to be out there 4 o'clock tomorrow. Live show 4 o'clock tomorrow right here on Business Radio 111. In the next half hour, we have a guest, an academic, a behavioral economist here to talk about a topic that we debate furiously on the show on a regular basis. Momentum, essentially. Lionel Page, welcome to the show. Welcome. Um, thank you very much. Good morning. Morning, Lionel. You're calling from where this morning? From Brisbane, Australia. Oh my goodness! From the other, literally the other side of the world, Lana. We appreciate you taking the time. It must be evening down there. Um, now, to give people background, Lionel's on faculty down there at the Queensland University of Technology. He is the head of the Queensland Behavioral Economics Group at the School of Economics there at Queensland. And Lionel, can you give us a little bit of background about how you got into how, why you ended up in Queensland and? how you ended up in behavioral economics, and then eventually we're going to want to hear about the, the tennis paper that you're doing. Right. So um, as you make it from my, my accent, I'm, I'm actually French originally. So I had to, to, to do a bit of a, of a trip to Queensland, and, and the reason is that my wife is from Queensland. Got it. All right. As it happens, I've got two, two dear friends on vacation, a good friend from Brisbane right now, and he's and they're out there visiting family in Brisbane. What's yeah. It's... Uh, it's um, you're, the behavioral economics. You were at, you were at the you were in the UK for a while, and then you've moved. I was, yeah. Okay, so how did you yeah, get I was in London? What is your background on on in behavioral economics to begin with? How did you get going in this direction? Uh, well, I was a, I was a, an applied economist interested in uh, applied microeconometrics, but also very interested in looking to how people behave, uh, how people make decisions. And uh, when I started my PhD, it was a, it was not the still the hype of behavioral economics, but, you know, among the young generation that people could feel that uh, that's something that was very worth investigating and investing time and effort into. 
and I was part of this uh, yeah this group of young people interested into it, and I I became became one behavioral economist. And and Lionel, some folks take that in more of a theoretical direction, but you've gone in a very empirical direction. You've always been let's go collect the data kind of guy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, I, I was trained as, as a kind of applied statistician and uh, and with an interest in behavior. So I wanted to to mix the two to how we can get the best data to have the best insight into behavior, and mm-hmm. that requires, as you say, that requires getting looking out there and finding uh, you know spe- special data to test behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you are interested in grabbing these data to test behavior. What led you into the world of sports? I know it's not the case that all of your research is on sports, but I know that you've been dabbling in sports here and there. Why sports yeah. for this? Well, sports is, you know, you know, first, you know I, I like most people, most guys, I like to enjoy watching sports. But be, besides that, sports is fantastic if you want to test theories about how people behave in strategic situations. You've got this um, massive amount of data out there um, situations where the rules are very uh, clear, the stakes are usually very high, so people, the players are very motivated, and also the players, you know, they're professionals, they're experts in what they do, so it's not that uh, they're discovering how to play and they're, they're naive. At least we, you, you should think they should not be naive. So, you know, if economics uh, has a lot of theories about strategic behavior, uh, rational behavior, optimal behavior, if economics has to say something about how people behave, that's kind of that really should be true in these kind of situations when you have experts with high stakes doing exactly something something where the rules are exactly you know we understand the rules we know the rules exactly. Right. So in some ways, I can imagine you coming at this from very much an economics perspective, trying to address criticisms from the economics community. You want to say, okay, you don't believe these psychological things matter because it's a lab or because they're undergrads or because there's no pay. We'll go to a place where we're dealing with professionals who have decades to learn. There's millions of dollars at stake, and we'll see if we still see the flaws there. Yes? Yeah, exactly, because, you you, you know, you you have theories in economics who say that when there are strategic behavior, people should do this kind of strategy or this – strategy A or strategy B, and then you put students, undergrad students in this institution, which often are quite complex, and they don't do it. So economists may say, well, they don't do it because, you know, they're just undergrad students, um, they're not familiar with the situation, it's very different. But we say, okay, now let's take players who've been playing years of their life, they're the best players in the world doing this stuff, Um, do they follow the prediction of the theory, yes or no? Because if theory cannot explain you know, professional players uh, playing the games that they are in trying to, then, you know, it's not clear what, what the theory should, should be able to explain in the real life with normal people. Yeah, so Lionel, this is Eric Bradlow. I have a question. So a lot of people might argue yeah. maybe sports is the worst place to do it because of all the complex interactions between players. Is that maybe why you chose tennis, which is more of an individual sport? Like, how do you think about right. interactions? And is that possibly, and maybe you could tell us a little about what you've done in tennis. Yeah. So look, you're right. Like, I mean, nothing is perfect. Like, and, and in team sports in particular, you have team sports, you have like very complex dynamics. So it's not like sports, you know, one, one difficulty when you go out there and that you don't build the experiment in the lab is that you don't control the situation. So you have to take the situation as it exists with all its complexity. And if we wanted to test theories, we, we, may, we, we would 
certainly prefer to build more simple rules of the games and, uh, than what the game, than how sports typically are designed. But we have to we have to take the, the rules as they are. So, so what what I do is I try to look out there in all the sports that exist and try to identify some very specific situations where the rules are clear enough that you can you can say okay in this specific situation uh, the theory has clear predictions and you can retrieve enough data from real world sports to test the theory. And so tennis in that aspect is very interesting because uh, in some ways it's simpler than other games. Like as you say, it's not a, it's not a team sport, so you don't have problems of coordination or, or between players. And also the rules, uh, how the games progress, even if it's not trivial, uh, we can get a good grasp of it with uh, economic theory. Right. So, Leno, you established something in this paper that we argue about on the show all the time. So despite being right. a statistician and a serious guy, Eric believes in momentum, and we always give him a yeah. hard time about this. The rest of us say, yeah, it probably exists, but it's hard to measure it, and it's probably not as important as people think well, it is. We, we, just to clarify, some of us, like, I don't necessarily believe in momentum, but I do believe in non-stationarity. Which is different. Okay, it's sure, not exactly sure. the same, and we can confuse the issues. But okay, so Lionel's going to go go out and find a place where he can test this in a very clean way. It's really tough to test because he's trying to do it in the in the real world, and yet you got to control things as well as you do in an experiment. So Lionel, can you tell us how you did that in, with the tennis study? Right. So we want to test whether there is momentum in the fact that um, winning helps you win more. Right. So you you are in a competition and you you start winning. Does it change your probability to win the next whatever bat, the next uh, period, the next set uh, in the competition? So now, obviously, you know, I mean, if I was to do stats and I take the people winning one set in tennis and, 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 and I tell you that, well, the guys who tend to win the first set win also the second set, and you would not be very convinced because you'd, you'd be telling me, yeah, right, obviously, you know, Rafael Nadal wins the first set and he wins the second set yeah, right. just because he's Nadal. Yeah. So, so, what, so what you want to be able to do, is, which is very difficult, you want to be able to, to, to find a situation where somehow it is a fact of winning, which has a causal effect, but not because, but, but, but just strip out all the things which could be due to the um, individual um, characteristics, right. typically, which can be observed, like ranking, but also it could be unobserved because suppose, for instance, I tell you, that I only pick people with uh, similar rankings. It could be that some guys, you know, uh, are better on clay. Yeah. So if they win on clay for a given ranking, they win afterwards. Or maybe they are just like better on that day, right? So yeah. So One of them had a better breakfast. Yep. You got you you, you got exactly. to have some way of controlling for that. Yep. Which is exactly. basically impossible. So we're really curious how you did it. Yeah, I'm interested to the, hear the nuts and bolts <laughs> here. I mean, obviously not in the technical applied statistics terms, but like, wh- what are the set of situations? I'll use your language. You're gonna love it. What are the set of right. situations you use to well, test well, this? Well, the good the good thing is that you know because of the complexity of the question, my, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for situations where it's almost as good as, as an experiment. So what I'm looking for is not something to do complex, like uh, to, to, to use a complex statistical model to retrieve an effect. And, and people have done that, right? So some people have done this approach. I'm not trying that. I'm trying to find a situation where credibly I can tell you, I, I can try to convince you that in this situation, what I observe is, is as good as an experiment. Which right. Is, suppose you have two guys and they're fairly similar in, 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 in quality and, and in ability, and one of them ends up winning the first set. You know, it's like I, I could uh, throw a coin in the air, and it's, it's there, and the guy is 
gang the left wins and, go, and they go in the second set. One has won, the other one has lost. What's happening then? Um, so so that's, what, that's what we're looking for. And so what we've done here is that uh, in this paper, we've taken a huge amount of sets of, of matches, which data is available on the web because uh, there's so much interest in tennis that people, uh, there's a huge amount of archive match on the web. So you can, you can retrieve all this stuff from actual matches that existed. And we, we took our data set contains um, 300, more than 300,000 matches from a men and 25 from women. There's much less uh, matches which are archived for women. And so what we're going to look for is situations where players can be considered almost as equal in the first set. And and what we fucked off is, okay, so what is the first set when it's like almost, when players did almost the same? Well, the fuck, well, the tie breaks is a situation when you know players are struggling to make a difference. and. The intuition is that as you go, the longer is the tiebreak. It means most likely that the players must be close in ability because if they were different in ability, then they would be able to end up the competition earlier. So using this huge amount of uh, matches, we then zoom in and try to look as much as we can to the long tiebreaks, the tiebreaks which last more than 20 points. Oh, my. Uh, wow. That's not very yeah, often. Yeah, can I, so, can I so guess, the, can I guess th- the base rate? Do you, you, uh, you started with 300,000 men's matches, and now you're asking of yeah. guys who start the match comparably ranked. Now, that's one parameter, so there's some closeness there. And yeah. play a first set tiebreak, and that tiebreak goes at least 20 points. What are we down to? Eric's going to guess. I'm going to guess it's uh, my first gut. I'll just go with it. One half of 1%. Which is how many? Uh, I, I don't have the number, but it's very small. It would be 1,500. 1,500 games, okay. Well, yep. 1,500 matches. 1,500 uh, matches. No, less. Oh. No, we have less. Less than that. Even less, uh, okay. And I would guess for yeah, women, for you men, probably have a tiny fraction. Yeah, for women, we have a, a much more, smaller number. For men, then, look, uh, I'm just eyeballing this because I have an Instagram under my eye of the, of the paper. I think it's like more than 1,200. Okay, so so Eric was close in his approximation. Fun little game he likes to play. All right, so you've got 1,200 men's matches where the guys come in comparably ranked. Yeah. They play a tiebreak, and it's a long tiebreak. And you're going to say by the end of that, the winner of that first set is essentially chance. Uh, Lionel, can I just ask a clarification of what Kay just said? Just want to be sure. Do the players have to be comparably, comparably ranked going into the match, or could no. they just be equal at the time because they're in a very long tiebreak? No, no, that's that is what we what we do is we don't we, we check we check whether they have differences in rankings or not in long time breaks and they don't. But we, we the technique is only relies on the length of the tie break. That is we're going to okay. Okay. look for the tie breaks who get longer and longer and longer and okay. and, um, and then we check that the guys who, who reach this kind of long tie breaks do not differ on average in the range of characteristics I see. Okay. in the rankings. Okay. And so what, what, when we do that, what we find is that um, basically you can, you can run very long time ranks uh, and the probability of winning from the, the, the player who wins the first set uh, doesn't drop very much. It's, it's, it's kind of stuck uh, towards 60%, uh, which is a big difference. So if you win a tie break by, let's say, you win a tie break 15, 13, massively long tie break. Because if you see in tennis, you know, a tie break should on a, uh, the minimal tie break is, even seven nil, right? You know, you need seven point to win tiebreak. So, so instead of a tiebreak of seven point, which is a minimum uh, length of tiebreak, we have a tiebreak here fifteen thirteen, a tiebreak of twenty eight, 
points. And, and in such a tie break, we, we see that um, the priority of the winner is 60% versus 40% for the loser in the second set. So that's a massive effect that you're going to attribute to that you're going to attribute that to chance. This is Lionel Page. Lionel is professor of economics down at the Queensland University of Technology. He heads up the behavioral economics group down there. And Lionel, you're saying that, okay, you've got this sample. You've identified the sample based on very long tie breaks among men's tennis players. And you're going to use that identification to say the winner of this thing is essentially a coin flip. And we, in, on this this show, like of course, it. always talk about the role of chance in sporting events. It's not hard for us to understand. Yeah, sure, of course there's some chance in that. So you're saying that the the winner, by chance, of a first set tie break goes on to win the second set at 60% probability. So a 50% higher yeah. rate of winning. That's a pretty yeah. heavy amount of momentum. That's more than than I would have expected. Uh, Eric Lionel, is proud. I just want to say, we've been doing this radio show for three years. I just personally, yeah. not even professionally as a statistician, but personally, <laughs> I want to thank you. I've been trying to convince these gentlemen for years that momentum exists. Of course, one could right. quibble with it, but I'm just saying, the thing I like about your analysis is at the point at which that second set starts, except for two points, because you have to win a tiebreak yeah, by exactly. two, those two people... On that day, I'm not saying forever, I'm not saying on a different surface, on a different time, they were as equal as you could have gotten, and now you're comparing them in the second set. So observables, unobservables are all baked into that. I like it, your analysis, <laughs> and thank you. I knew momentum existed. Okay, Lionel, now we've got to flip it. You, you know, you're coming at this from an empirical direction. Now we need to flip it to the theoretical side. Why would that be? What are the explanations for why that would be? Okay. So I, I can't tell you, you know, I can't tell you, uh, I can't tell you even more than that because we have a, we have a, I have a, a paper uh, which is an even better data set. So you love this stuff. Um, we got access to the oak eye data. So, so you know, like the, the ball hawk, tracking data. Yeah, the ball tracking in tennis. You bet. Yeah. So when you know when the guys they, they think that the ball, the, the umpire makes mistakes, it's a challenge, and they use the oak eye data to to see the position of the ball. And what I did with a PhD student, who is a, a great guy, and now he's, 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 um, he's got a postdoc position at the University of Sydney, is to use this data to do another kind of, um, to do the same ID, but within a game. So we want to see whether there is a momentum within a game. So if you win a point in a game, does it help you, does it help you win the next point? And what we did, we, we, we said, okay, what is winning a point just by chance? Well, if you put the ball, you, you know, the, the guys hit the ball very hard at high speed uh, and, and they, they aim at 50 meters, like I don't know, 10 meters away, 15 meters away. So we thought, okay, what if you look at the balls which stands very close from the line? And, you know, you, you can't, the players cannot aim perfectly. So there is some randomness in ball position eventually for a given shot. Sure. And so we compared the balls which landed within five centimeters of the line, just in or just out. So real quickly, Lionel, let me, let me understand and make sure. So you would have wanted to, once you've established that as the measure, then you would have wanted to show that it was unrelated to ability in some way. So, for example, exactly. if you say all the shots that are just in or just out, that's going to be our test yeah. group. That's going to be our manipulation, exactly. essentially, of whether they got lucky, good luck or bad luck. And just to make well, sure that that manipulation's free from actual skill, you're going to show yeah. that better players weren't more often in in that sample than worse players. Exactly. Okay. Anyway, I can tell you that. Obviously, if you, if you look at the people who put the ball 50 centimeters, you know, 50 centimeters out, they're different. Right? The guys who put the ball 50 centimeters in, they tend to be better than the guys who put the ball 50 centimeters out. 
But when you narrow the window close enough from the line, then you don't have any difference. Like when you look at you know, four to five centimeters yeah, right. close from the line, right. they're all the same. Good. And then now you can use the study. Like you can see that if the ball is in, you, you have a quality to, to win the point. But if you put the ball out, then obviously you know, you're losing the point. So you have a, here again, you have a, a random variation. Right, which perfect. I think you should Brilliant. Win, a random variation in the quality of winning the point. And we can use that to see the effect on winning the next point. And, and here what's um, great is that, because we are talking about the theory, is that we can, the game is a, a, game is a more complex game than a best of three sets. You have, you have several passing to you can reach a game. It's very interesting. Sure. And we have, theories, we have theories about what kind of momentum could happen. And when we test, we observe momentum in a game. So if you win a point, you observe that male players are, uh, if they win a point by chance, just by hitting just within the line rather than just out, yep. they have seven percentage, points, seven percentage points more likely to win the next point. Wow. Wow. And, and we observe that the theory, the, funny, the interesting thing is that theory tells you where the momentum should be. It should be for the, when, you, when the contest is very close. So you should observe this momentum after 0, 0, 15, 0, okay. 30, 0 and juice. And that's what you see. Okay. Got it. Wow. So very interesting. You're going to have to send along the paper when it's ready, or if it's ready now, send it to us. We'd love to see it. We've only got a couple of minutes. I think it's interesting for people to know where this comes from, at least in the way you motivate the first paper. You say that by, that the folks who study animal behavior have observed this in animals, that right. e- yeah. equally matched all different kinds of species, when they lose a battle they are more likely to lose future battles. Is that right? So the, the, the motivation, the theory goes that deep. Is that right? And we've only got like 30 right. seconds, so I've put, I've put you in a bad spot. But is that the right way to understand this? That's the right way, but there's a very good reason for that. If you think about the, the past, like evolutionary past, right? Uh, in particular for males, there is a contest for two fine mates. If you start winning a first encounter, you're learning that you are, you know, you're in the game, so you should expend more effort and, and try harder on the next encounter. And, we, and, and there is evidence that in the animal kingdom, it's kind of modulated by testosterone. So you win an encounter, you are learning that you, you, know, you can win the world tournament, testosterone flowing, you become more aggressive, uh, more risk-taking, right. and that helps you to win the next encounter. And this can happen, what we believe is that this can happen within a match. You start winning, you're learning that you can, you, you, you can win the world stuff testosterone rise and that makes you more aggressive and more risk-taking. Wow, Lionel, that's amazing. Now you just need to talk the, uh, PGA, the, the USDA players into letting you take uh, testosterone samples between sets and you'll be all set. <laughs> Lionel, thanks for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. Late down there You're in welcome. Brisbane. Wish you the best with the, with the work and please keep us posted. It's really interesting stuff. I will. Thank you. Thank you very much. You bet. That was Lionel Page, professor of economics down at the Queensland University of Technology. He heads the behavioral economics group. He's just got a paper out on momentum in tennis showing about as definitively as one can show in a field setting that there is an impact of momentum. Our buddy Eric Bradlow is happy about that. That is the halfway point of our show. We still have a half to go on Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Philadelphia, PA. Locust Walk, the business radio studio here in Huntsman Hall. 
This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradley. We're missing Shane Jensen. Shane will be back soon, I'm sure. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, especially if you're listening during one of the replays. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday morning, you're catching one of the five replays. Drop us an email. We pick them up over the course of the week. Matt Johnson will do that. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. We are off the ground in the social media world. It only took us three years. You want to follow us at Twitter. Our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We try to follow the world of sports analytics there as well. We're going to be out doing a special show tomorrow from Ben Franklin Parkway, which is the parkway that flows right from the Rocky Steps. This happens to be the place where the NFL draft is held this year. Back in Philadelphia, Philadelphia hosted the very first NFL draft in whatever year that was. Maybe our next guest can tell us, 1936, 1937. Back here, we're going to be out there 4 to 5 p.m. tomorrow with our buddy Scott Rosner, Ken Shropshire. They're, they are the hosts of the Wharton Business Sports Sports Business Show. Um, NFL is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. But before you get to the NFL, we got to go through college football. And for that, we've got a fantastic guest coming back to the show, Bill Conley. Welcome back, Bill. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Bill is uh, the proprietor of Football Study Hall on, at SB Nation. He is um, he is he's becoming the godfather of sports analytics or football analytics in college football. When people want to go to a handy number these days, whether it's an overall ranking or the quality of an offense, they very often go with Bill's S&P rankings. And he's also the co-host of I don't say this. I can't say this to very many people, but I can say it to two people. He's the co-host of my favorite podcast. Podcast ain't playing nobody. If you if you if you're a college football fan at all, especially if you're a college football fan with a taste for analytics, you need to be listening to Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. So, Bill, we're delighted to have you. I appreciate it, and and uh, give some good thoughts to my Podcast Ain't Played Nobody co-host uh, right. Stephen Godfrey, who is in the middle of. Uh, rooting on his wife uh, oh in, in labor. Oh, uh, goodness gracious. So Steve, Stephen's been on the show before, and, of course, we enjoy the contributions he makes to the show on the on more the journalist side, and certainly we wish him the best. This is his second kid about to hit the ground, which is a big moment. Bill, you're calling in, I'm guessing, from Columbia. Is that right? That is correct, Columbia, Missouri. So, Bill, Bill, we hear about your your loyalty to the Missouri Tigers. It sounds like you've got a long list of kind of unfortunate loyalties dolphins after the 70s the pirates after the 70s the trailblazers god knows i guess after the 70s and now missouri how do you how do you you know how do you take solace with that with that list of well, you know, I mean, at this point, I've just decided my, well, I mean, Missouri is, is hard to, you know, that, that loyalty is going to be what it is because yeah. I've lived in Columbia for 20 years. But yeah. after that, I've just, my loyalty is to college football. Uh, that just my, that's my second favorite team, college football. That's... That way, you know, that works out a little better. But no, I mean, that's, you grow up in western Oklahoma, your choices are either uh, root for the Dallas teams or pick your own. So based on who I enjoyed watching, I picked my own teams. They all were late 80s. They were all up and coming. They were all promising. Bonds, <laughs> Vinnie Van Slyke, Terry Porter and Clyde Drexler, Dal- uh, Marino and Clayton, et cetera, et cetera. It seemed like pretty good choices. It felt like bandwagon choices at the time. Well, that's what, really Bill, that, that this way. is Eric Prado. That's what I was going to ask you. Um, this, The Dolphins in the 70s, the Pirates in the late 70s, and the Trailblazers. You're just a bandwagon guy, right? You're a front runner. <laughs> you right. picked I'm all the winning just, teams. I'm just horrible at timing it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the biggest. Uh, yeah, I was about ten years late on on basically yeah. all those choices. And how did those friend they none of those franchises have come back since then? I will say though, the Pirates are known as being one of the more analytics savvy teams, mm-hmm. and it's fun to pull for the small market teams. 
Oh yeah, Bill. We yeah. this is you know off season. We, we we could God knows we could talk sports analytics, football analytics, and maybe we can come back to it. But I want to make sure we spend some time on your book because your newest venture is a book that you've titled. Guys, you have to stay with me on the title because it's a clever one. Because this is Bill. The title is the fifty best asterisk college football teams of all time, and then underneath it, parenthetically next to the asterisk. The most interesting, innovative, and influential, anyway. So he's not saying these are the 50 greatest. He didn't run his rankings to say these are the 50 highest quality, highest power rankings. He's saying these are the most interesting, innovative, and influential 50 teams of all time. This is a hell of a venture. Why did you, what was the the motivation for, for biting this one off? Well, I think, you know, part of it was I, I was looking at a, at a way to kind of attack. For a long time, I've been trying to figure out a way to kind of attack college football's history because there's, I mean, as I write in the book itself, you know, we it is such a regionalized sport. Um, and, you know, if you grew up an Oklahoma fan, you know Oklahoma's history backwards and forwards, you know, the Big 8 and the Big 12 and all that. You probably don't necessarily have a great feel for USC's history or Alabama's history or, or whoever. And so we all, you know, it, it, with the NFL – we we know the Super Bowl champions. We have a, a much greater shared history. But in college football, and until a few years ago, we didn't even really agree on the national champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it has been a kind of a choose-your-own-adventure kind of history, and I thought it would be kind of fun to start tying the pieces together a little bit. So this book is an attempt at that. It starts with 1906 Chicago. That's the first team, the, the, the one of the first teams to kind of – Sort of master the, the the forward pass that that uh, came into legislation that year, uh, and then we just kind of walk through different offensive innovators, if different uh, defensive innovators, just teams that that uh, were noteworthy because of drama or a head coach or whatever, and and, and you know we finish up with the 2013 Auburn team that uh, you know that completed a hail mary every week to win the game. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I want to underscore this thing that you're talking about, which is it's when you hear the title. You think, oh, it's going to be a collection of independent stories, and I'll, I'll I'll buy it to read about, you know, my favorite team. And I'm lucky that I've got two chapters in there. But it turns out that this is basically the history of college football. And yeah. it's but but how do you write the history of college football without putting people to sleep? Well, you do it by by separating it into these kind of interesting moments and interesting teams. And you and I have found as I've read this, you kind of challenge the reader. You say in the front, you say, okay, guys, you probably bought this to read about your favorite team. Fine, fine. Go to that chapter, read that, and then consider picking up and reading it from the front because you're basically going to get the history. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. I went to the University of Chicago. I'm interested in 1906 Maroons. Let's do that. And then as you go, you do this great job of basically illuminating what was going on at the time. And along the way, you start learning things about, you know, Newt Rockney and Red Grange and John Heisman. And, and eventually you, you have a sense of the sport that you just didn't have before, despite having, you know, basically followed our entire life. I love your explanation for that. It's because it's regional. I grew yeah. up on the university. I can tell you everything about the University of Texas. I can't tell you a whole lot about USC's history. Yet USC is one of the most storied programs in the country. Yeah, I, I mean, that was the goal. The goal was, yeah, if you want to skip ahead and just read 1968 Texas first, it's not gonna, you're not going to be lost. You're going to understand it within the, the context of just specific chapters. Um, but as a whole, yeah, it, it was intended to flow. That took, a, I mean, that took a little bit of effort and, and time and whatnot to get that to, to flow just right. And uh, the, I spent a lot of time on, on the set list, so to speak, on, on figuring out the, the right 50 teams to – to work through. But, well, I we're going to we're going to want to hear about that. It yeah, it, it, it you seem to have come up with a, a great set, but it it's almost an impossible question. How do you decide? I mean, how many college football team seasons have we observed in 140 right. years? A lot of them. How do you decide on? How did you decide on the 50? 
Well, it, it, first, I just, uh, you know, just sketched out uh, as, as many as I could um, just off the top of my head and then and kind of walking through, uh, like I said, the, uh, like figured out a list of offensive innovators and defensive innovators and, and truly memorable players, the Herschel Walkers and whatnot, uh, Red Grange, um, you know, and, and so when I structured that original list of teams, it was something like 107 or something like that. Um, and, and, I mean, first of all, the 107 greatest college football teams of all time is, is – you know, maybe that's a weird enough to be a catchy title, but that book would have been about 900 pages long. So, so Bill, let me um, hold on for one second, because this can you tell us how like what is it in your background that you were able to build such a list? Because I think most <laughs> of us, if you'd have asked me the 50 greatest college football teams, of the time, I couldn't have done it. I could have come up with like 12 and four of them would have been University of Texas sometime. <laughs> Well, I mean, part of it is just being a nerd and being a college football obsessive for a long period of time. And, and now, I mean, I've also been writing about college football for, for a decade. And I think this is where the, the day job, so to speak, of not only writing about college football, but writing about every college football team uh, yeah. and trying to interact with every college football fan base for the most part. It, it kind of pays off a little bit because you start to figure out, like, the teams that – stick in the mind of each individual fan base. And so that's, you know, I was able to pretty quickly hone in on, on 1968 Purdue as one of the options in the book uh, because I, you know, just from what I had heard, from what I had read before, uh, you know, I, I was able to dive in and see, you know, they were the number one team, preseason team in the country. They kind of filled this role of a lot of second-tier programs where you think it's your time and then one of the heavyweights comes in and says, okay, we've got our act together again. It's time to, to ruin your plans, and Ohio right. State wins the national title. Um, but, yeah, it, it really it really was, um, you know, I, I got a little bit of feedback. I saw a little bit of feedback here and there, but a lot of it was just mostly because of the, the, the decade or so of writing about college football. I had, a, I had a pretty good idea of how I wanted to attack it or which teams I wanted to hone in on. Okay. Just that original list was absurdly long, and I had to figure out what to do with it. Okay. I want to ask you to look at this work from two different perspectives. One is to drop down and give us one of your favorite stories from it, but then also to back up and say, okay, after, after having written this thing, what 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 patterns do you see? But start tell us what do you have a favorite among the fifty, or do you have a, a favorite anecdote in there somewhere? Well, I think that I mean a couple of the ones that um, there are a couple of chapters that surprised me. Like I put I put Utah nineteen thirty Utah on the list partially because you know from a stat standpoint when I would go back into historical ratings uh, for each year they were off the charts and that made me curious as to why nineteen thirty Utah was right. off the charts. So right. that 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 got them on the original list anyway. Uh, was just pure curiosity there. Then it turned out, you know, it was a really, really interesting story of them having this perfect collection of talent, uh, just a, a couple of breakout sophomores. They had nobody to play in the Rocky Mountain Conference. They right. tried to, uh, as, around that time, uh, the Depression was starting to, start, you know, take effect, so to speak. And uh, there were some benefit games forming. And so, you know, they tried to see if they could figure out how to arrange a postseason game with USC and St. Mary's and a couple teams out east at Yankee Stadium. And, and they couldn't quite get it all figured out. Uh, and I love this part, uh, specific antidote. Number one, they, they finally just gave, uh, did I say an antidote? Anecdote. Um, they, they, gave, they gave up after a while in, in mid-December because they had to switch over to basketball because all their football players were also good basketball <laughs> players. They went like, 21 and three or something in basketball that year. That's fantastic. Um, but one of the benefit games that did stick that year was Army Navy, and they've played right. every year since. See, this is this is the kind of thing you get out of this book. You're telling you're telling us about 1930 Utah, and you're reading it. And one, we're learning that in that era they would 
cast around for games mid-season. And now you're giving us right. the motivation. It was depression. It was benefit. But to think that there were all these games like, okay, who wants to play in December? We'll play anybody right. in December. And there's kind of this disappointing, oh, they didn't get to play their game, you know, with that particular chapter. But then you just drop as a little nugget at the end of the chapter. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Army and Navy played for the first time as one of these benefit games and have played every year since in one of the greatest rivals, rivalries in college football. Yeah, I mean they had played on and off before then, but it wasn't an it wasn't Army Navy. It wasn't the annual occurrence, and that's why it started. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of a fun thing to discover there. Um, I'd say you know I, I've, I've given this example before on on a couple of uh, uh, with a couple of other people, but I think from a discovery standpoint, 1965 UCLA had maybe the most fun, ridiculous, dramatic season of all time. Um, especially the way they finish up a crazy comeback to beat USC, then they go to Memphis in early uh, December for some reason to play ten. Tennessee and have this back and forth game with lots of drama and, and official calls that the head coach hates and the and Tennessee wins by like the the nose of the football in the last play and then they go and upset Michigan State in the Rose Bowl to take out uh, Michigan State's national title dreams. That was what just a really really fun chapter to write. I knew I you could see the scores and I knew you know Gary Beban and and Tommy Prothrow and whatnot, but that there was a lot more to that season than I even thought when I put them in the book. Right. So the 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 one the, that also shows one of the benefits of doing this kind of work because we tend to think it's tough to beat 2013 Auburn for drama. I mean, right. really? You're going to tell us that these guys lived a more dramatic season than that? And you're like, yeah, as a matter of fact, you go back 50 years and you can find some pretty dramatic seasons. We're talking to Bill Connolly, Bill of SB Nation fame, football study hall fame, podcast ain't played nobody fame, and the creator of S&P, S&P Plus in um, in college football analytics. He's got a new book out. The book is called The 50 Best, asterisk, college football teams of all time. He's talking about the most interesting, innovative, and influential teams in the history of college football. It's kind of an excuse to tell the history of college football, and he does it in a very colorful way. Yeah, Bill, I have a question. You know, I'm a, I've am always been, it's not because I was a front runner. I was always a Boise State fan. I was interested that you picked the 2010 season as compared to what I still to this day consider the greatest college football game ever played when they <laughs> won on the, as you remember, forget the Statue of Liberty to win the game. You remember there was, as in your book, there was a hook and ladder play mm-hmm. to get them to that. I still consider it the greatest college football game. Why didn't you pick that season as opposed to the 2010 Boise State season? You know, I think the 2010 team uh, attracted me more simply because, um, and it's funny to say this because, you know, they've gone undefeated twice and this wasn't either one, but 06, that was an underdog. Um, You know, they they weren't quite where they would end up in terms of depth and and athleticism and physicality. They were just a really good team and they used trick plays to win. That became kind of the Boise State model, this trick plays, trick trick plays, misdirection, etc. Well, four years later, um, they didn't need trick plays anymore. Uh, you know, they, they uh, beat uh, Virginia Tech that year in Landover, Maryland, uh, just beat them, just uh, made a big run and, and beat a good team. They beat Georgia the next year uh, by just running their offense and, and being so precise at it. And I think those teams, you know, 2010, Boise might have been the best team in the country, honestly. They lost one game uh, on the road to a really good, to the best Nevada team ever, uh, and they did it, you know, with uh, a couple of missed field goals by a very, very, very good field goal kicker. And so the fact that a team from, at Boy, uh, in Boise from Boise State could maybe have been the best team in the country and, and you know, in a playoff uh, environment, they could have uh, actually won the national title. I think that intrigues me more. They wouldn't have made a playoff because, A, the committee's never going to put a mid-major in the, the, the playoff, and, B, they lost the game. And so, um, you know, that, that, that um, you know, kind of changes the context, I guess, a little bit. But that team was truly awesome. 
uh, whereas those 16 was really good, but uh, you know they they were still kind of using a little trickeration, and, and 2010 didn't need it. So so that's a that's a long reasonable explanation. My shorthand explanation for why Bill did that is because he's a contrarian. If if everyone's going to pick one team, he's going to say no, nah, no. Nah, this other team is the one I want to write. And about. it's also great game versus great season. You're not yeah. picking the greatest game right. of all time, which you, I hope you would put that Boise State game, oh, the trickeration no, game, was in it. An amazing game. So uh, this is Adi Weiner. I enjoyed listening to your tales of of yesteryear. Particularly that the 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 team that couldn't find a bowl game because they had to go play basketball. Bill, you have to know, Adi will tell us stories about 1940s Yankees all day long. All right, so y'all 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 get together. One I of these went days. to all those games exactly, <laughs> but <laughs> but one one of the things that intrigues me is is just listening to those yesteryear story about college football. It was the amateur kind of environment of college football back in those days was was absolutely ev- self evident, and anyone to watch to watch the games, and, and you watch it today, and it's so professionalized is there a team in the history that sort of typifies that professionalization oh that's a good question um you know i think i i would i would say maybe uh in terms of both innovation and uh, you know just skill and and personality and everything else i think that you know the mid to late 80s is when you kind of maybe started down that road the early 80s were a were a period in college football where uh, well, I mean, among other things, nobody really knew who was going to be good from year to year. Bear Bryant had just retired, and, you know, Georgia wins the national title one year with a team that wasn't even one of their best. Um, and then, uh, you know, up and down and up and down. But starting in the mid-'80s uh, with Oklahoma and Miami, I, I would say, I mean, they got their act together. Florida State soon followed, obviously. And I think those are the teams that really started to go down that road. One team that almost made the book but didn't because I already had two teams from 1993 was the 93 Florida State team with Charlie Ward. Uh, that would have been a good one for that very reason. That was the quote-unquote pro-style offense at its peak to, to a certain degree. Uh, but 88 Miami's in the book. That was a team that you know had a ton of pros everywhere uh, and, and carried itself like an NFL team. Probably might, could have challenged some NFL teams. And then maybe 91 Florida uh, with, with Spurrier's influence there. So a, a very different direction to go would be, you know, they were actually – there's a, quite a bit of we, – we talk about how they use the kids and it's prostituting, you know, the academic experience. And you see some of that in some of the history. So the 1924 Notre Dame team, yeah. that you talk about having like a three-week, you know, grandstanding all the way across the United States on the way out to the Rose Bowl. They put the players on trains for three weeks and ran them down through <laughs> New Orleans to try to basically pump up the game and pump up Notre Dame. Notre Dame was just – just coming out then. That sounds, you know, that's basically the 1924 version of what we worry about them doing to kids now, right? Yeah, so oh, much yeah. for finals. I mean, that, right? was, uh, that was the year Notre Dame, uh, you know, all got all of its uh, ducks in a row, so to speak. It convinced the higher-ups that, hey, football is a very good... Um, uh, you know what do they call it? The front door to the university now, and and that was a, a, a major logical extension of that. Right. Uh, being able to uh, you know say, hey, look at look at these good wholesome Catholic kids that are are going around representing uh, a good portion of America, and then we're going to go out and win a football game too because we're so such good athletes as well. Uh, that that was certainly uh, yeah. And then the next very next year, 1925 Alabama, it was the same kind of thing with a different approach. Instead of Catholicism, they were promoting, hey, look, Southerners can play football, and and you know. 
know, uh, they, they went all through the South, especially on the way home. You know, had to stop, after they won the game, they had to stop in New Orleans. So a bunch of Tulane people could congratulate them. Auburn right. was congratulating them. That's amazing. Um, it, it was the same kind of grand stuff. This is huge, this huge train tour uh, throughout a general area, though. So, Bill, let's talk about the patterns that you see in the sport and maybe that what, what, what some of that means for the sport today. And one that jumps out to me, I'm curious, this is, this is just a hypothesis, and, it's a, and it ties back into what we do on the show. Is it possible that that wins are more concentrated in small in fewer schools now than they used to be? So one of the things that jumps out as you read this book is, you know, Tulane used to be a national power and, you know, Sewanee used to play and, you know, Carnegie Tech, you know, before they even Carnegie Mellon, which is Division three now used to be like a powerhouse and and, and University of Pennsylvania where we're sitting. Exactly. So Heisman coached here. Who knew Heisman coached here and Red Grange had his blowout, you know, breakout game here. And 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 now it's like, no, Alabama's number one every year. So could we run the analysis if you you could imagine guys like running a Herfindahl or something on wins? And I'm guessing that it becomes much more concentrated over time. Is that is that is that one of the patterns that you see? Um, I, I, you could probably maybe back that up by, like, I think now if we ran that, you might see something where, um, I mean, obviously Alabama is the standard, but you might see a few, a larger volume of dominant uh, teams this year. If you think about just the consistency that Alabama and Ohio State and, uh, I mean, even kind of LSU, but, uh, you know, there are a number of programs now that you can kind of count on, uh, you know, 12 programs are going to sign most of the recruits, and therefore eight of those programs are going to be really good for any, right. for, uh, any given season. I would say though that um, you know to me the pattern that I might have picked up on uh, going throughout this is that there are just there are periods where it all kind of aligned together for the powers and then other periods where it all fell apart and so the mid 30s you know after Alabama comes back uh, you know they win uh, in 1925 uh, they come back home uh, and and the South has decided well you know we can be really good at football let's be really good at football and so the Tennessees of the world uh, certain t- uh, teams in this big 25 team Southern Conference appear to be a little more committed to playing good football and they all join together LSU Ole Miss Tennessee Georgia uh, Auburn Alabama etc. Uh, and a couple stragglers in like Sewanee and 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 Tulane and whatnot, but um, you know they they still in, in the 30s. Then there was this period of ups and downs where Minnesota was about the only team that was really good every year, and and it was it was kind of college football trying to figure out who was going to be good. But then after the war, it was Michigan and Notre Dame. Um, then in the 50s, you had a bunch of of, of coaches retiring all around the same time uh, that had really won just most of the games of the 30s and 40s, and so Oklahoma was really the only stable entity and you had ups and downs and a different national title every single year uh in the 70s everything coalesces where ohio state oklahoma nebraska alabama um penn state and notre dame are tremendous every single year and that's basically it uh, but that's a good, uh, you know, a high number of dominance. I would say maybe uh, if we looked at, if we were able to figure out how to study that just right, we might see that in the 2010s, kind of a repeat of what we saw in the 70s in that regard. Uh, the ruling class was a little bigger. But then the 1980s, early 80s were a total free for all, and Miami and Florida State became national powers in that time. Um, so the, I, I think there are up cycles and down cycles in that regard. Yeah, it's, so we, it's been one of the really interesting things. We live in these moments where things feel inevitable and, and it's easy to lose track of it. It's not always that way. So Saban's not going to live forever. Right. Alabama's, Texas is going to come back, by God, eventually. Well, that's Bill. That's what I wanted to ask you. You had mentioned one of the things you had mentioned just a few minutes ago was, you know, in the 80s when Bear Bryant at Alabama obviously stopped coaching. 
As you look forward to a team like Alabama, which we said is a perennial number one, you know, Nick Saban's not going to coach forever. He might coach another five years, ten years. We don't know. The guy looks like he'd coach another 30 years, but let's <laughs> assume it's not going to be forever. Has a team like Alabama gotten to such a level now that in some sense, the minute Nick Saban's done, they'll find the next great 50-year-old coach who can coach for another 20 years? Or do you expect to see the kind of cycles you're talking about in this book? It's so hard to make two good hires in a row, even when you're uh, really, really good. When you think about, you know, uh, you know, Oklahoma made a, a home run hire in Bob Stoops. Before that, they hired John Blake. Uh, you know, they replaced Barry Switzer with Gary Gibbs, who honestly wasn't a terrible hire. He had, uh, you know, he had probation to work with and everything else, but he still didn't work out very well. And then they hired Howard Schnellenberger, Howard Schnellenberger, and then uh, John Blake before they got around to making another great hire. Yeah. Alabama before uh, or after uh, Bear Bryant hired Ray Perkins, who was pretty good. Um, you know, not good enough for Alabama fans, but uh, pretty good. And then Bill Curry was solid. They had actually had a good run of solid hires. Uh, but then they hired Mike DuBose, Dennis Francione, and Mike Shula before getting around to Nick Saban. So it's really hard. They're going to spend a lot of money. They're, they, they'll have as good a chance of anybody as making a good hire. It's just so hard to make a good hire, and, and there are so many variables you just don't know ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bill, we're down to just five minutes or so, and we want to ask um, some more general questions. We've been talking about Bill's book. Let's make sure we, 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 we sell it a little bit more because I do think it's a fantastic read if you're at all inclined. To, to follow college football, the 50 best college football teams of all time. Brand new book from Bill talking about the, quote, most interesting, innovative, and influential in a way. But Bill's got other jobs. He runs numbers <laughs> off seasons. He's running, he's running um, previews of teams on a daily basis. By the way, Bill, my brother-in-law went to Colorado State. When I saw you, when I saw, I heard you and, and, and saw a, an article come out on, on your expectations for the Rams, I had to get that over to, to him and his family because those guys have had some rough few years, and it's nice to be optimistic about that program. But, Bill, what what are you looking forward to most about? How are you getting through the offseason, the desert, the college football desert? What are you looking forward to about 2017? What do you think is interesting that we should be keeping our eye on as we think about 2017? Yeah, I mean, just generally speaking, one way, one good way to get through the off season is to write a preview about every single college football team. Uh, that'll that'll occupy most that'll of your keep time you going. Yep. in early February. Yeah, um, so that helps. Uh, there is no desert in that regard. But um, yeah, I mean, that's you know, we are just about through the mid majors. I am on to the AAC. Uh, I almost said AAC conference. I hate people when people do that. That's saying conference twice, I guess. But um, you know, just about done with them, and that, that means the power conferences will start soon. Uh, and so and that. Bill, let me hold those are a lot more fun. They get a lot more feedback on those. Well, let me jump in there. You do have a bit of a thing about plugging the the group of five, the non-major conferences. And it yes. seems to me this is a little bit, I think you're, it seems like you got a little bit of this contrarian thing, but it's also, there's a bit of a service, I think, across all of your enterprises. You, you were one of the first to do analytics in sports. And it's basically saying, look, let's look a little deeper in the game. Let's understand better who's actually good and why. And then you're with your group of five, podcast ain't played nobody orientation it's like look look beyond the power five you know it's not just about that show that showcase game on saturday afternoon so in the sec there's a lot of other interesting football going on and now you come up with this book which is okay look beyond 2016 2017 there's 100 years there's 140 years of history here a lot of it's interesting there's a theme there and I, I, I do you agree and is that part of why you are so interested in the group of five teams more so than most college football people yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I got a little socialist in me, but uh, you know, beyond that, um, I, football is such a massive undertaking. If you if you were to go to Colorado State and just spend a week uh, watching all the different people who are involved in getting that team to ready to play a home game on Saturday, uh, just hundreds of right. people at every all of these different schools, and that's their passion. And and there's a little passionate pocket of fa- of fans everywhere in the country, even at the the, the FCS and D2 level. Uh, and I love being able to kind of empathize with those groups and, and find the kind of the, the common ground and ups and downs and whatnot with, with everybody. It just makes things more interesting. I, you know, talking about the SEC all day is fine. Uh, lots of storylines to talk about there. But, I, you know, just the volume of stories available to us that we don't pay attention to, lots of interesting things, and it's really fun to dive into in that regard. Well, I think you do a good service because there is so much else going on. And, and uh, one of the problems is we, we tend to be interested in what we're familiar with. And so we right. just, there's kind of this self-fulfilling thing. We're not paying attention to the you know, the AAC. And so we don't think we like the AAC, but as soon as you start studying a little bit and you find out interesting things about various schools, all of a sudden now you want to and enjoy watching them. Bill, in the last minute or two, do, do you pay much attention to the NFL draft? The draft is here in Philadelphia tomorrow. We're going to be out there. Um, we talk about the draft all year round. What, how do you, I know it's not your, your, your deepest thing, but are you going to pay attention tomorrow? Well, I think you know, in a way, we you know, there, those who pay a lot more attention to college than pro almost see it as kind of a you know, you're giving away your 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 sons now. Like, please, oh, that's well. funny. Like, I, I I enjoy seeing where different players went and kind of sometimes being aghast at where you know a player being particularly high or low. Right. Um, but really, you know, a week from now, I'll forget where all the players went. Um, I'll kind of remember the players and, and about where they fell in the, in the order, but the team they ended up on is just I'm lost to that part, and then I, I have to pick it up randomly uh in the fall but yeah that that's uh that's probably my interest is in the players more than the teams they're going to so what what player or two are you especially interested in this year that you like for whatever reason well, I'm really, um, I, you know, Pat, the the quarterbacks obviously are the first things that come to mind. I, I I really like a lot of these running backs, but the quarterbacks, you know, seeing where Deshaun Watson will go and then how he will do is is yeah. interesting. But really, I think a, a bellwether for this uh, for moving forward is is Pat Mahomes. I cannot tell you for sure how right. he will do. He is right. so good and makes so many weird mistakes. <laughs> um, but you know the the volume that he produced at Texas Tech was absolutely ridiculous, and and maybe that becomes a you know maybe he becomes proof that an air raid guy can work. Although Mitch Trubisky is also kind of an air raid guy, uh, but he's an extreme air raid guy. So I'm really curious how he does. That's a it's a great example, and you know he's had a pretty amazing college career given what he was surrounded by. He's an intriguing character, and there is just a ton of uncertainty. It's one of the that's one of the most fun. It's probably the most fun thing about the NFL draft is that. After all the years and all the data and all the expertise, we still don't know. We can't tell you whether Pat Mahomes is going to work out right. or not. Bill, listen, man, really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, as always. You bet. That's Bill Connolly. He is uh, at SB Nation. You can follow him. I believe it's at SBN Bill C, maybe at SBN underscore Bill C. He is the author of a new book called The 50 Best Asterisk College Football Teams of All Time. It's a great book on the history of college football that has been three quarters of wharton moneyball we still have a quarter to go come back and join us after the break welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. That's Danielle Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us up from the bottom of the hour, rolling into the last quarter of the show. 
just off the phone with Bill Connolly, our friend, frequent guest here, college football analytics extraordinaire and author of a recent book, fun discussion about the history of college football. We're going to be talking about the future of professional football, the NFL draft tomorrow from the Ben Franklin Parkway here in Philadelphia. Philadelphia Philly's hosting the NFL draft. Crazy idea. Philly's host, Philly hosted the first one back in 1936. They're hosting this one this year, expecting 200,000 people out there. We're going to do a show. Wharton Business Radio going to do a show out there. Audie and I are going to be co-hosting with Scott Rosner and Ken Shropshire. Those are the two guys that host the sports business show. And then Brad Lowe's coming out later, joining a group of us out there to take in some of the festivities as the draft actually gets underway. And I'll be like tweeting it at W Moneyball constantly during the draft for those that follow our show right. and at Biz Radio 111 as well. All right. We got a new handle out there in Twitter land at W Moneyball. Eric's going to Eric's promising to do some tweeting from the from the draft on Thursday night. Well, so uh, while on the phone with Bill, our friend margie from mississippi we know she's a college football fan down south of course she is gave us a ring margie has a question for us margie welcome to the show hey it's good to um, be talking to you guys i really enjoyed the last segment talking about um the trends in the decades about college football dominance mm-hmm. and one of the things i think you didn't address was the impact of media dollars in this decade and maybe the last one, but certainly in this decade, and perhaps how that's changed, um, recruiting, recruiting visibility. And I know that even in the past decades, media dollars and television dollars weren't part of the equation. Um, Southern Miss even claims national championships in 1958 and 1962 with, um, with uh, Coach Van, who was a colleague of Bear Bryant, and so I understand the ups and downs, but you guys didn't really address how much the television dollars are currently impacting dominance of college football. And I'd be interested in your comments on that. So, so Margie, this is Eric Brado. I think that's a great question. Um, I, you know, As Bill was speaking, I was thinking of the two sides of the coin. So one is lots of power teams are now getting massive exposure. And that's obviously growing college football, but that's my point. It's growing all of college football. Alabama, Auburn, the great teams, Mississippi, they can only take a certain number of players. So as the media dollars has grown the entire sport of football, that's why I liked Bill's comment that you're not just going to get one great team because the sport has grown so much and no team can take all the players. You will get 10 to 15 competitive teams that will all have star recruits because media has grown the entire business of college football Every team can only have so many players, and that's why I'm excited about the future of college football because I think since the pie has grown so much because of the media exposure, there's going to be a lot of power teams that all have enough talent to compete. So I love your question, and that's the way I was thinking of it. The whole pie has grown enough that there'll be lots of competition out there. Margie, thanks for the well, call. I can, ta- I can tell you from being in a... Oh. Margie, glad to hear from you. Give us a ring back. Always happy to hear talk college football. I know your abs didn't quite do as what, what you wanted them to in the NHL, but uh, we've got college football just around the corner. So that was Margie, our friend from down in Mississippi, talking a little bit of college football. Guys, uh, let's change gears to the professional side of things. So the draft, so much fun that Philly's hosting this thing. I would never, even having paid attention to the draft for a long time, I wouldn't have known that it could take over a city. I mean, it's, it's kind of absurd, think, frankly. It, it has in the past. 
right? That's right. They started moving it only in the last couple of years whenever they ran into some kind of negotiation issue with Radio City so, Music Hall. Uh, right. It used to be indoors, and I think last year it was in Chicago. It was That's it, correct. It was it, and it was outside. I think it was mixed out. Indoors, outdoors. Indoors, there. right. Yeah. So they built a whole studio. Now, here's the thing. A couple of years ago, we had the Pope here. And they predicted millions of people. It turned out to be a complete bust. No one showed up. Um, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> it's, it's a little overstated. Well, yeah. a little bit. I mean, essentially, but they, I mean, but, but they basically shut down Center City. They shut down I mean, Center City. Well, they're shutting, so, shutting down. How, a what's pretty happening wide, for the city here? Well, so it's basically for those people. I mean, obviously, a lot of our, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the movie Rocky. So the Philadelphia yeah. Art Museum is actually right in front. The Rocky Steps is where they're building the pavilion, the overhang thing. It's massive. I was just. In that area last night, they're blocking off basically seven or eight blocks by about three or four blocks wide. So getting to that area, you basically can't drive. You basically have to walk. But it's a very big, large area that they're taking over for the NFL draft. So, I mean, they said they're expecting 200,000 people out there. So this, I mean, you know, it's, I thought it was going to be a little bit like going to Radio Row for the Super Bowl like we did back in January. But I think this is going to be a bigger deal. I think that. it's going to be a bigger be deal. Fun. But let's talk about the substance of the draft. So, Eric, what has your eye about the draft? Well, there are two positions, not surprisingly. There are four I want to talk about, but there are two positions that have really caught my eye. One, Bill, just building on what Bill Conley talked about. I mean, there's four quarterbacks that everyone's talking about. It's not obvious exactly in what order, how soon they'll be picked. There's Trubitsky, there's Kaiser, there's Watson, and there's Mahomes. Those are the four quarterbacks people are talking about. I didn't about. even know that Mahomes has slipped into the, that conversation. Oh, no. I, there's big three for a long time. No, I know. Is Mahomes coming up? He's not only coming up. A lot of people now believe Trubisky's probably going to be first, first quarterback taken. I don't think a lot of people think that Cleveland's going to actually take him with the number one overall pick. Right. But then a lot of people, and this is where the intrigue comes in, that's why I'm excited to be there, they think Mahomes will actually be the second quarterback you know, now taken. That's I'm so skeptical. I'm not skeptical of Mahomes in per, per se, but I'm skeptical about the process because I think it it's almost fueled by a level of dissatisfaction with the top three that they started reaching. And and it's maybe Mahomes is benefiting just from having been outside the top three for the first three or four months. It's almost like they have to have some quarterback they're excited about. I, I, I agree with you. And you know also, Kate, obviously you've done a lot of work on the draft and at the quarterback position. There will be, at some point, there'll be a run on quarterbacks. In other words, I'm sitting there. There's four picks between me and my pick. One of these quarterbacks is gone. If I don't pick now, then you know I'm indifferent between these other three, but they could all be gone by the time I pick. There will be a run on quarterbacks. I'm excited to see how quickly it happens. Like, Let's imagine Cleveland does the unheard of in this case, because I don't think anybody thinks Trubisky's Andrew Luck, the next coming necessarily of Andrew Luck. No, not, a, not close. This, this no, year, I understand that. It's, right. but, but it's a weak class? Is it, it's a weak quarterback, quarterback class, for quarterback. sure. But let's say the two-pick, let's say San Francisco, let's say somebody does decide to take Trubisky. Let's say it's San Francisco at number two. They have essentially no quarterback. Let's say they take him. You may see four quarterbacks go in the top 15 You're picks saying then. as soon as someone breaks the ice, As soon as someone gets breaks worried. the ice, everyone gets There's worried that they're all going to be gone. Now, so what, what, real quickly, what that will fuel is, if that's true, it will f- fuel trading up to get your guy. Correct. And it's one of the things I feel sorry for the Cleveland Browns. I mean, there's just so much capriciousness in 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 sport because shouldn't they be trading well, so, that... so real, but the point is that the browns have the number one draft there have been years where that would be a franchise altering event yeah. and it's not for these some guys. people so, would argue miles garrett they're saying he's you know he's demarcus Ware. No. they're i'm just i'm just <laughs> saying what they're I'm, a lot of people are saying he's a franchise altering end 
defensive oh, come end. On. People aren't saying that about him, though. That's, what you, want. That's, what, you want. So, That's Kate, what you want in a number one pick. Well, mechanically, how long do they have to... Ten it's minutes. Only, no, it's five now, isn't it? They, they moved it from ten to five a couple of years ago. For a long time, it was ten. So tonight we'll finish the, the, the I think first round. Five Is that what's going to happen? Tonight the first round will be finished? Thursday night. Thursday Tomorrow night. night. Thursday night. Thursday Thursday night. night. Yes, they, they, that's have, it. Thursday night is just the first round. And then Friday is rounds two and three, That's I think. correct. And then Saturday is four through seven, I believe, is the so, way it goes. So the quarterback position interests me, but actually there's a position that interests me more than the quarterback position is the running back position. So I'll list three guys that most people listening probably that follow college football know. Obviously, there's Fournette. There's LSU, Mc- Leonard. Yep, there's McCaffrey. A Christian, Stanford. From Stanford. <laughs> and Dalvin Cook. Florida State. Right. So, fast, fast guy. Right. So those three it really intrigue me because they're different style players. Uh I don't know in what order they're well, going to go. But just go with Fournette and McCaffrey. You couldn't get two, two more different, different running backs. And they're both spectacular. Spec- so what, what is your position on that? So, I mean, Christian McCaffrey is this interesting character because he is really much – he's not that big a guy, but he's super fast. And yep. he's, he's a super exciting player. A little more Reggie Bush-esque um, than and, – and Bush – when Bush was drafted – they, he was supposed to be a once-in-a-generation talent. I mean, people were so excited based on what he had done in college. And he's only been kind of a serviceable NFL. I mean, it's amazing to be a serviceable NFL running back, but nothing compared to his college. I, I'm a little concerned that a McCaffrey – I know it's not a perfect analogy, but I'm a little concerned that McCaffrey will be in that category. Whereas Fournette has the body type that seems to have a little more durability in the NFL. Actually, I'll be honest, uh, the the one I like the most out of him is Dalvin Cook. Is that right? I do because of his ability to pass catch. I just think, you know, he's um I always forget the guy's name, Sproles. He reminds oh my gosh, me yeah. Dalvin Cook reminds me of Darren Sproles, who is he's not your every down back. But, you know, when he's the the off time, the guy can catch out of the backfield. You can't touch the guy. He just – but either way, I'm very, very interested right, in the running like back Matt position. Matt Johnson's so, size, by the way. Our producer is about the same size as Darren So Sproul. let me ask a, a more a, a practical – if you're an analytics staff member and you're working for the team, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking more about trying to figure out the proper valuation of a player? Or are you trying to think about a strategy that you can get – more than your draft position would be worth, and what, what's the two angles, or how, how do you what are you thinking? Okay, about? so I those are exactly the two dimensions you should think yep. about. Yep. And um, for most of history, the teams have worried only about the former player selection. That's what it's about. That's what they think they're right. good at. That's what they they spent years doing evaluating players. And only periodically have we seen teams be very strategic about how they actually manage their portfolio. You know, the most famous example is Jimmy Johnson when he came on. With um, with the Cowboys, and they built up their. Well, he traded Herschel Walker for basically, you know, you remember a, a that ton, one? a ton of a picks. ton of a picks, ton like of three picks. number ones, yeah. number two. I mean, basically, was, they built was, the Cowboys of the nineties. But it 90s. was more than just that trade. It was a whole philosophy around managing those picks and managing the portfolio. We have we have worked with teams and told teams precisely this: that you don't see any differentiation on the ability to select players. That, of course, some drafts turn out really well, some drafts turn out poorly, but there's no persistence in that in that performance. Now, there's nothing in, co- in the data that some smart person can figure out. There's nothing. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm not saying it can't be done. It's that historically nobody stands out. And if you look at a team like the 1975 draft by the Pittsburgh Steelers, for example, one of the best in the history, you would expect, if, that, if we're going to give them credit for one of the best drafts in the history of the NFL, you might expect that the 74 draft should be good. Or the 76 draft should be good. You'd expect some persistence, and you just don't see it. On the other hand, the other dimension, 
that's exactly where we try to point teams. It's like you don't, you can't differentiate yourself on selecting players. You can differentiate yourself on how wisely you manage your portfolio of picks. Well, that's what I was gonna. That's what I was gonna build. On. As you know, Adi, everyone mm-hmm. has a point sheet now in front of them. Um, you know, here's how much. Here's how many points the first pick, second pick, third pick is worth. I guarantee you, just like Kay just said, every person, every general manager, the phone's gonna ring. Should you trade down? People are looking for point arbitrage opportunities. They're looking for someone saying, we believe Trubisky's great. We need to trade up to number two. San Francisco's saying, great. Give us, according to this sheet, and they all have the same sheet. Give us Who double- made the sheet? Originally, a colleague of Jimmy of Jerry Jones's. He, uh, uh, is, isn't that really horrendous? I mean, isn't that the it is, it's, well, official take here's, by the analytics team? Here's what happened. So he, uh, one of the owners, he was eventually bought out, but he came into the Cowboys with Jerry Jones. He was an engineer from the oil field, and he just took a couple of years' worth of trades. It was a backward-looking, descriptive curve, basically just drawing a curve to fit what had been done in a few years. That's all it was. But that became the chart. As guys left the Cowboys and moved to other teams, they carried away the chart. The chart. And now everyone it's, – it's not that everyone has the same chart. It's that it has a common history, and they – they all have their ver- versions of it, but you can think of it as a market price. And as the chart proliferated, it's basically like prices firming up. And yeah. so there's this norm for what's paid at every given position. Yeah, I was just commenting that I'm sure, as as Kate said, portfolio is the right way to think about it. If I can stockpile points by trading down, I'm going to do it. Now, why would that happen? What's a market? Someone believes that Trubisky or Fournette is a game-changing player. They're willing, despite the uncertainty, they're willing to overpay. They know they're overpaying in points. And the team that's you know, going to reap up all these points, they're happy to do so. So trades are expected, especially, by the way, in a draft where there are no obvious you know, 10-year pro bowlers. You may see a lot of trades. As a matter of fact, uh, Mel Kuyper and you know uh, Todd McShay, who do the draft for ESPN and stuff, they said every one of these top ten teams would be more than happy to trade out of their pick and stockpile picks so if the, they could. The, the I don't trades, think that's true. I do not believe that. You don't every think, one of the top ten teams would be happy to trade out? What I said is they said they'd be happy and willing for the right trade. There's no lock player that's there. In, in this but, year's draft. In this year's draft. But here's the thing about the guys, teams still fall in love with players. They can they they're so much more um, prudent in January. By the time April rolls around, they've looked at data for so long that they fall in love with players. I remember working with a team one year where there were three consensus top offensive tackles, and in January, literally in conversation with them, they're like, yeah, you know, they're kind of all equally evaluated. And then three months later, there's no new data. There hasn't been one football game played. They don't really You've have made any that measurables. Paid many points. There are and, no games played, and, and yet, and and so yet they, they fall in love with, with one, one of the three. They have to, so they have but, to play, get the okay, one so guy. Let me ask a technical question. So the the point system essentially tells you what the market price is for a draft a draft position position. That's yeah. got to change depending on the draft quality. So isn't there an update for this year? I mean, for ex- you talk about the franchise. If there's a 10-year Pro Bowler sitting there at number one, that draft position well, has many more points well, than it does so in the I, previous I, year I when talked it doesn't. About, I talked about this a little happen. bit last week. So if you look at um, 538 and also ESPN Football uh, Insiders' uh, ratings of the players, between the 4th and the 32nd, there's like two points on a 0 to 100 scale difference between the players. And we're assuming the standard hour of measurements greater yep. than that. There's one player, this Miles Garrett, took like a 95, then there's a 93, and then it goes from 92 to 90, and there's like 40 players in that range. <laughs> and the points, what's the range on that? Oh, it would be... <laughs> 
So you got but, anyone willing to play arbitrage here has got to is, can just make a mint. Yeah, but but you make so largely this is true. Largely there's a market price, but there is differences in demand. So when you have a bunch of quarterbacks at the top, mm-hmm. or when you have some guys that are a little bit more consensus than just Miles Garrett on being team changing. There's just more interest, and so some. some basically, the way to think about it is, some years you can't get market. These there are guys that Brown would trade. The Browns would trade down at chart. There's almost no question they would trade down at chart, but they, no one's offering them chart. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Right, so, the, so that essentially the the market is essentially adjusted. It it, well, I, I, it it adjusts some for sure, but it doesn't adjust as much as you'd like. The people that think people now that the chart here's the thing. This is psychology, and this is also to some extent sociology. Now that the chart is so widely held even publicly known. Teams are reluctant to do trades for less than chart. They don't want to trade down. They ought to because this year is a place where this you would, you you would said trade. The Browns would, would, should trade down, but the chart would suggest they should get at least a couple of positions out yeah. of number one. But the, that should be great for them. But no one wants to offer. Let's take your, your premise, which is yeah. that this is a weak draft and so people don't want to pay chart. So no one wants to offer chart. So the Browns ought to adjust. They need to adjust. The, right. This, my point is when the public has the chart, and you're subject to the scrutiny in media. <laughs> right. You don't want to they sell. They don't want to go down. You don't want to sell on a discount. And chart and value. And that's and so silly. It's not just the Browns. It's everybody. And here's what makes it even sillier: the chart's not a good estimate of value. The chart is wildly wrong, as a matter of fact. But even people, this year, people it's more particularly make, wrong. People ought to make trades. People ought to trade down from the top at a great discount to chart. But there's a reluctance to do so for lots of reasons. One of them is people know chart, and you'll get lambasted for having in made a bad trade. I basically. see. And I think the other thing, remember, Adi, is that... Opportunity is here, though. Yeah, but not only just opportunity, but remember, most teams believe, and I think this is true, your goal is to win, let's say win the Super Bowl. Most people believe it's not linear. In other words, you need to get that game-changing player that's going to give you an opportunity to win. But this year doesn't win. have it. Well, it it doesn't have it based on the prior ratings. You know, we don't we don't know. I mean, then you're just taking chances. You have to recognize that's the point. That's so you the want point. Take a lot of chances. That's right. right. Trade so, and take a I, lot of chances. So the, the lesson that I'm learning from all this is that the chart is, is is publicly known, and so everyone sees what you should be getting. And yeah. because the current crop doesn't really match that chart, no one's gonna. No one wants to get humiliated by taking a deal at less than chart. No one wants to make a deal because. The, yeah, the so Adi's basically predicting lower volume of trades at the top of the draft this year. Which his, is, right, his theory which, would be but, lower yeah, volume. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. So you would think here's if it's it, an opportunity. If, if it were a fluid market price, you'd always see the same number of trades at different prices. But prices are sticky, and so what happens instead? Prices always kind of stay about the same, and just the number of trades move around depending on how much interest there are in the players. By the way, the buzz this year, again, as I said, the quarterback and the running back positions, There's that's where I think the most buzz you know, Eric, is. You, you named three running backs, but this, in fact, is a very deep running back class. And running back in very general deep. is a position where people think, at least historically, people have thought, well, there's this kind of this conventional wisdom emerged over the last 10 or 15 years that running backs shouldn't be taken at the top of the draft, that they're kind of replaceable. Obviously, then, the Cowboys did something Ezekiel, a little different exactly, last year. Ze- mm. Zeke Elliott kind of got people's attention because he seemed to have made a big difference. Now, my position on Zeke Elliott, as much as you like him, look at the line he was running behind. We have a terrible time contextualizing performance. We have a terrible time conditioning out what his contribution was relative to the contribution of that line. Well, you're basically doing what most people that do statistics and analytics on fantasy sports and every sport play. You know, what's his, let's call it, yards or 
win propensity above replacement. Let's put even an average running back behind that line and see what they do. Let's look at that differential. And that's why you even see in fantasy sports, yeah, Zeke Elliott had a great season, but there are a lot of running backs that also score a lot of points. And so there are positions where you choose differently at different. So I could not agree with you more. Uh, the, it, less, the lesson ought to be. I mean, why was that line so good? Because Jerry Jones finally, after twenty years of futility, started drafting prudently and he drafted heavily. He invested heavily he in his draft, line. He, as you know, he, he wanted to draft Johnny Manziel, Manziel and pa- he drafted a great lineman. So the I think the lesson, the Zeke Kelly lesson, isn't draft. A running back at the top of the draft is invest in that offensive line and then take any running back you can get. The only reason I brought those three up, only those three up, is those are the ones projected to go into the first round. Okay. Those are the three projected. But the third round running back may end up being as good oh, as sure. any of these guys. For sure. So if you're a, a second round, if you're a second team like the, the Giants, uh, not the Giants, uh, the, the 49ers, yeah. where, where, what advice would you give them that would be savvy, that it would be interesting? Oh, I've, I'm, I'm, I've, I've I'm kind of a broken record on this. I mean, at the top of the draft, we think people should trade down, and we think they should trade down at a discount. So, so, I mean, so if I'm watching the draft, if they start to do that, we should be nodding our heads and going, "Aha!" There's, yeah, there's and, some and people do here. that more now than they used to. When I when I when our first when our research first came out, people thought we were we were mocked in a number of places. Absolutely, and and now it's seen by some people an increasing number of people as the wise way to go. It's less exciting. This is one of the reasons it doesn't happen very often. It's a whole lot less exciting to take like an offensive lineman no one knows and a second round linebacker as opposed to like the you know the exciting skill position players. But it's it's proven to be a better long term way to build a program. The question's whether your team has the patience to play the long game. Yeah, that's the other issue that you brought up. A lot of people think they're just one player away. And so that team might pay extra to be that one player away. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. We do it live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This has been Cade with Audie and Eric. Shannon will be back in the studio here in the next couple of weeks. We're all going to be out on the Museum Parkway tomorrow for a special show, 4 o'clock tomorrow, with our friends from the Sports Business Show as well. This has been Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to Daniel Bruno, our sound engineer, and Matty J. Glad to have Matty J. back in the studio with us after a week away. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.